Boy, that, that sets us up well. Our memory verse for the month is 1 Corinthians 1.8. And I'd like you to recite this with me. 1 Corinthians 1.8. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8. And I want to emphasize this idea that God, Jesus Christ, is the one who keeps us blameless. We bow at his feet because he is Lord and he is all-powerful. And if you think about God's omnipotence, his all-power, one of the most powerful things that he does is our holiness, our sanctification. If you think about who you are, take a second and think about that, who you are as a sinner and as a fallen person, tempted on a daily basis, to think that it is God and his omnipotent power who sanctifies us. That's huge. That's amazing. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 6. And as I sort of set the stage for this, I want to tell you a story. Back in the 1800s, there was a math problem that had gone roughly 350 years unsolved. Nobody had been able to figure it out. And if you've had like some high school algebra recently, you'll know the quadratic equation. Okay? So you probably have had to memorize it at one point and you hate that and that's fine. The question, the problem that was unsolved is, is there a quadratic equation for higher level polynomials? Is there an equivalent of the quadratic equation? Could anybody ever develop such a formula for a larger polynomial? And people wondered about this question. And back in 1832, a young man named Everest Galois started working on this problem. He was 20 years old, um, kind of eccentric, as a lot of math people are. <laughs> it's reality. Uh, he, he's working on this problem, and he was making substantial, real progress on this problem. Uh, and then he met a girl. And everyone says, uh-oh. And it, it turns out that this girl was already in a relationship. And so Everest Galois, in his state of brilliance, challenged this other man to a duel. And at 20 years of old, Everest Galois realized the mistake he had made the night before the duel that the man he had challenged, it seems like, was an artillery officer in the French military. <laughs> and he realized his odds of victory were slim, and so he wrote everything he knew about this unsolved problem down on a sheet of paper that night. Turns out he solved the problem, 350 years, and people much older than him had worked on for a long time. He solved the problem, and the next, next day he was killed in the duel. And it leaves historians to wonder with a really important question. Could not this man with so much potential, so much brilliance, have found a better way to solve his problem in life than a duel? He should have known better. He had all this potential, all of this brilliance, and yet he didn't know how to solve the simple problem of combat over a woman. It's a sad story, a sad story of some irony, but that story actually repeats itself day in and day out in the life of a Christian. 
You see, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And as we study 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what I want you to pay attention to, to really see come out of that story, is that we have to recognize that our actions in life need to reflect a theology of regeneration. We have better ways of solving our problems than the rest of the world because we have regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ. We have a better way of solving problems. We should reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ as we live a life that's been changed. Read with me 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The first thing that really stands out to me in this passage, in verses 1 and through 6 altogether, is that Christians need to ensure that actions reflect a theology of regeneration. We need to make sure our actions reflect a theology of regeneration. God's people are especially equipped with divine wisdom. As the people of God, God has granted us his spirit, his word, the work of the Holy Spirit as we read his word to reveal to us God's will, God's way of life. God's people are equipped with divine wisdom. In verse 1, we learn a lot. We learn about a situation in Corinth. What it seems like is going on is that in Corinth, some believers are suing other believers. And in order to really make sense of this, we have to understand a little bit about Greek culture. From what I was reading, Greeks in Corinth and other Greek cities were just about as so happy as Americans are today. Um, the Greeks actually had a system in place. From what I can tell, everybody had to serve in the court system, like jury duty today. But it was so bad that if anybody reached the age of 60, because a lot of people would reach the age of 60, at the age of 60, you had to go serve as a juror for a year, it looked like, from what I can tell. It was just mandatory because they needed to solve some of the problems that were going on in their society. 
people would take each other to court in order to demonstrate their power. It was a, a power play. You would take a lesser to court to prove that you were a superior in society. And apparently, based on chapter 6, this had spread into the church. And so Paul has a major problem that he wants to deal with. He says, if you have a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? And I want to point out, uh, the NIV translates the Lord's people here at the end of verse 1. I actually think that's a, a poor translation. It, it's actually the saints. The Greek word is the word that we would translate as saints. It is God's people, yes, but it's more than that. Paul is making an important play. Do you take your trivial court cases before ungodly people or before those who have been sanctified, saints, who've been set apart by God, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Holy Spirit? God is contrasting unrighteous, ungodly people, people who reject God with people who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. When we would contrast, we would often, in my mind at least, I would contrast the unrighteous with the righteous. That's not the contrast that God makes here in chapter 6. He contrasts the unrighteous with God's people or the saints. Why does that matter? Because none of us is righteous. None of us is righteous. For it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. But we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We are sanctified, we are set apart, we are bestowed with Christ's righteousness. The saints have something special. We have the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. We have an eschatological perspective. So I told you that word two weeks ago. Eschatological means end times, looking towards the end. We have a perspective that looks towards the future. It says what happens here on earth is of little significance, save the spiritual, because what really matters is eternal. So Paul forms an argument. He argues from the greater to the lesser. And he says, the issues you face in this present life are a walk in the park compared to the grand scale issues that God has empowered you to deal with. We as Christians have God's wisdom given to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. We should be able to make wise decisions. In fact, Paul, Paul goes on and explains in verse 2 some of the decisions that are being made. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And you might say, wait a second. What do you mean the Lord's people will judge the world? I thought that it was Christ who was to judge the world. That's what Acts 17.31 says. I'll read that to you. Acts 17.31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So that's clearly Christ. The Bible, throughout the Bible, teaches an important fact. We get to serve with Christ. That is our eschatological perspective. We are united with Christ. In what he does, we are partakers of it. Romans 6, 8 says, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. First, or sorry, 2 Timothy 2, 11 says, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we also will live with him. 
Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The Christian hope, the Christian expectation is to be united with Christ and therefore partake in Christ's eschatological mission. There is a time coming when Christ will judge the world and we will be there with him. If we will be with Christ in judging the world, certainly we can handle the trivial cases. God's people are especially equipped with divine wisdom. In verse 4, what we see is that the world is especially unequipped with divine wisdom. The world lacks what the Christian has. Paul uses a pretty, pretty colorful language to describe the world in verse 4. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? The NIV uses the word scorned. Uh, other, verses, or other versions translate that as despised. Why are you going to those whose way of life is disgusting in the church and asking them to bestow justice on you? That's what Paul's saying. Why would you go to those who are unjust in every other aspect of their life and ask them for justice? It doesn't make sense. They're not going to give you justice. Instead, you go to those who know God, the God of justice. The world is unequipped for divine wisdom. So the conclusion of the argument in verse 6 is that God's people should consider carefully who is best equipped to use discernment. Paul actually kind of pours salt on the wound or goes for the throat. He says in verse 5, I say this to shame you. Paul is using really strong language. In a culture, the Greek culture was a culture of honor and shame. You needed to acquire as much honor as possible to get rid of as much shame as possible. And Paul uses really strong language for a Greek. I say this to shame you. This is embarrassing what you're doing. Use discernment. For all the wisdom that the Corinthians claimed to have, they were not acting very wise here. Okay, so let's uh, try to apply this. There's the obvious application. Christians should not take other Christians to court. Okay, that's the obvious application. But I think we will miss the point of the passage if we just leave it because the point of the passage, the principle of the passage, is that Christians need to take actions that reflect the theology of regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian. There are other situations where I think we can apply the principle here of using Christian discernment, using the Holy Spirit. People all over the world, especially all over the United States, are regularly seeking services like counseling services. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that as a Christian, if you are in need of counseling, and there's nothing wrong with that, lots of people need counseling for a variety of things, you should be going to a counselor who takes a biblical perspective. Why would you go to somebody who knows nothing of the spiritual for spiritual issues? It makes no sense. Okay, let me go, though, a little bit further. If you go to Barnes & Noble, there's not many of them left, but if you go to Barnes & Noble, you'll find whole sections on self-help. Whole, whole sections on self-help. 
If it's not written by a Christian, I don't know why you're going to look at it. Because how is a non-believer, someone who doesn't take the most helpful resource we have as their primary resource and help you? It's not going to be helpful. Okay, we can go a little bit further. Parenting advice. Why would you go outside of godly parenting and godly parents and seek parenting advice? The world has all sorts of advice, and where has it gotten us? Okay, what about finances? Did you know that you can choose Christian investment companies that make Christian values part of their investment strategy? That one hurts, but I think it matters. Why would we trust our finances to somebody who's not going to take a Christian perspective on things, who doesn't have that eschatological perspective? Yes, maybe this company over here is going to give me the maximum dividends in the next year, but what price am I paying morally or ethically by investing there? What about politics? Do politics matter? There are Christian groups that will help you look at political decisions, that will help you look at candidates, that will help you know how to pray for candidates. We have some prayer uh, pamphlets out on the information counter that have 30-second prayers that you can make every day. There are groups that look at this from a Christian perspective. We need to seek wise, godly counsel, not the counsel of the world. So in these first six verses, my application, my action step, is take a minute and evaluate your sources. Are you seeking counsel from the appropriate sources? Are you looking in the right places? Or are you allowing the world's wisdom to come into your life? The Corinthian mistake was they were going to the world for issues that they could handle at the spiritual level. Let's not make the same mistake. I want you, though, to look on because Paul's argument doesn't end in verse 6. He continues on, and in verses 7 through 10, Paul makes this statement. Christians need to take careful stock of how their life reflects the gospel. Christians need to take careful stock of how their life reflects the gospel. Verses 7 through 8, Say, don't get caught up in artificial worldly values. Don't get caught by the world's values. The world tells us that we must protect ourselves. The world tells us that it's better be, to be the one who wins, even if you win by cheating. Don't get caught by the world's values. What Paul's really saying is that the truth is, when greed wins the battle's already lost. When you allow greed to win, you've already lost the battle. It's not even worth fighting. A Christian principle is that it's better to risk the present in exchange for the future. It's better to risk the present in exchange for the future. We have an eschatological hope, an expectation, but not just an expectation, a guarantee of an eternal future with Christ, we can risk everything in the present. We really can. 
because we know what the future is. That's something really unique. When the world tells us prepare for the future, you've already done it. If you've accepted that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that that is all you need to get to heaven is to believe that Christ died for your sins and to accept that, your future is guaranteed. You do not need to focus on preparing for the future. It's guaranteed. That means that you can risk the present. Now, does that mean that you should just be foolish? No. Right? We, we also need to be stewards of what God's given us. But we can take much greater risk because our future is guaranteed. The principle is simple. Everything we do should be focused on eternity because we are guaranteed that eternity. It's a safe bet. It's better than putting money into an FDI-shared bank account. Okay? That's the future that we should be looking towards. In verses 9 and 10, what Paul does is he says, there are certain behaviors. We need to recognize certain behaviors that are characteristic of the unredeemed. So we're going to dig into this just briefly here. And here's what I want to say in verses 9 and 10. This is not to say, verses 9 and 10 does not say somebody who has committed adultery, somebody who has stolen, somebody who has been drunk is not saved. That's not what these verses are saying. What these verses are saying is that somebody who is consistently engaged in sexual immorality, somebody who is consistently engaged in idolatry, somebody who is consistently engaged in adultery and so on, is not acting like a Christian and therefore needs to make sure they really are a Christian. These are characteristic traits of the unredeemed. The Corinthians, Paul says, need to make sure that you're not deceiving yourself. If you are practicing this, you are acting unredeemed and you need to check yourself. So let's look at what these practices are. The first one on the list, sexual immorality. This is the widest word, porneia. It's the widest used word in the Greek. It means any sexual activity outside of traditional marriage. That's what the word means. There's just no way around it. Paul says, if you are regularly practicing sex outside of traditional marriage, you need to check yourself because that is a practice of the unredeemed. Paul goes on, though. He says, idolatry. Idolatry is a practice of the unredeemed. Adultery is a practice of the unredeemed. The uh, Greek is pretty, pretty strong in this next one. It, it literally, I mean, talks about homosexuality. And in the Greek, what it says is the dominant partner and the submissive partner are both practicing practices characteristic of the unredeemed. The, the Greek is really strong here. Uh, you, you can't get away from it. Homosexuality is a practice of the unredeemed. Theft, a practice of the unredeemed. Greed, a practice of the unredeemed. Drunkenness, a practice of the unredeemed. Slander, a practice of the unredeemed. And swindling, a practice of the unredeemed. Those are the sorts of things that the unredeemed partake of. Doesn't mean if you have done something on that list that you are destined for hell? No. If you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you have eternal life, and you've been forgiven for any of these practices. 
What it does mean is that if you are currently practicing this, you need to check yourself. And you need to go to God and ask him to help you with that struggle. But I want to take it a step further for us. If these are practices of the unredeemed, I want to challenge you to be careful about even flirting with disaster. Be careful of even flirting with disaster. What do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's tackle the first one, adultery. Okay? There are people out there who flirt with adultery. We need to be careful of that. We need to protect ourselves. Why? Because we don't want to fall into this. Or greed. There are people who flirt with greed. Just a little more. I'm going to not let it dominate my life, but I'll let it dominate one day a week. Be careful. Okay? There are people who flirt with drunkenness. I'll just have the one beer and I'll be okay. Be careful. No matter what we do, we need to be careful. There are characteristics that are characteristic of the unredeemed. We should stay as far away from those as we can. We shouldn't let those in our life. So it may be that you're flirting with these. It may be that you're engaged in these. It may be that things are going well right now. But the action step that I have for you is to carefully look for areas where you have allowed yourself to behave like the unredeemed. The point of this chapter, Paul is talking to people who are saved. But in our salvation, we can begin to act like the unredeemed. And Paul says, check yourself. The first thing he dealt with was court cases. But now he's broadened it and said, do a self-evaluation. Are you acting like the unredeemed? Why should we care so much about this? Because in verse 11, Paul reminds us that Christians need to carefully reflect on how Christ has changed them. Christ has changed us. That's why we live a separate life, a sanctified life, is because we have been changed by Christ. I love verse 11, so I'm going to read it again. And that is what some of you were. That list of sins may ring true to you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is the gospel. Yes, sin may have a place in your life where you've fallen for it. You've fallen into habits that are characteristic of the unredeemed. You have been in that state of being unredeemed, but Christ has washed away the sin. The Christian has been washed at the moment of salvation. That moment when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, the sin is washed away. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 is describing the church, and using that in order to motivate husbands and wives to live well together. But I want you to listen to how it describes the church. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
the picture of redemption. The picture of salvation is that we take this list of sins and your list may be different than the list here given in 1 Corinthians 6, but we all come with a list of sins. We all come with a list of sins. And at the moment where we accept Jesus's death on the cross as payment for our sins, Christ washes that away. Just like the dirty garment taken out and washed and made clean again. That's the message of the gospel. That's the hope of the Christian. Christ has washed us. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, separated us from our sins completely. The Christian has a status of being a washed person. But it goes even further. Paul says the Christian has been sanctified. Sanctified. The verb in the Greek is in the aorist tense. Aorist means it happened at a point in time. In the past, it's like a a then and done. And so this is positional sanctification. The believer is personally set apart for God. That's what the idea of sanctified is here is the believer was here in sin. God took you out of sin and put you over here. Sanctified, set apart for his work. At the end of April, we will have the NFL draft. And what will happen is players will be selected for a particular team. They will be positionally taken from not being NFL players. They will be taken from that spot of not being NFL players and placed on a particular team. They will not have played a game of football yet for that team. They will not have any stats yet for that team. But positionally, they are now a part of that team. And that's the picture of positional sanctification. We are taken from a status of being sinners without hope to the guarantee of an eternal contract with Christ. Positionally, we are sanctified when we accept Jesus as our Savior. Then Paul caps this with this statement, the Christian has been justified. Justification is a legal term. It's interesting, Paul's just been talking about legal stuff in chapter 6, and he uses a legal term to cap off this section. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The legal term justified means that the penalty for sin is paid and the debt is no longer owed. So that's interesting. If you look at verse 1, back in chapter 6, the issue was people taking each other to court. And if we think about legally, the wages of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. We are all sinners. We all deserve death because of our sin the ultimate lawsuit could be brought against us by God. And instead, what he does is he takes us from our state of debt and he justifies us. He pays it in full. Romans 5.18 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Justified, set apart and washed. That's our status. The Christian status is washed, 
the Christian status is set apart as a holy person for God. The Christian status is justified by God, judged as righteous by God. So, let me give an action step here. Take a minute and ask if you are living as someone who has been washed, sanctified, and justified. Don't know about you, but the one thing that I hate to do after having gotten out of the shower is something that causes me to sweat a lot. It seems like such a waste. If you've been washed, don't go back to the filth. I know kids love to do that. I used to do that. I'd drive my mom nuts. Go take a bath and go play in the sandbox. No. If you've been washed, don't play in the filth. If you've been sanctified, set apart for God, don't do things that God would look down on, that he would find disgusting. He set you apart for something better. If you've been justified, your bet has been paid. Don't go messing around with things. Live as one who's been washed, sanctified, and justified. Let me add one more piece to that. If you have not been washed, if you have not been sanctified, if you have not been justified, you're missing out. The showers are available. Use them. God is asking you. He's inviting you to this status of washed, sanctified, and justified. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your work in washing us, sanctifying us, and justifying us. I pray that you would guide us into actions that are representative of regeneration. Help us to be discerning in where we go for help, where we go for advice, where we go for counsel. I pray that you would help us to look carefully at our life, to ask hard questions. Where am I flirting with disaster? Where do I need to grow in order that I might live a life that reflects being washed, being set apart in holiness, being judged as righteous? Father, help us to live life that is reflective of what you have done for us. I pray that if there are any who have not made that decision to follow you, accepted that gift of your righteousness, that today would be the day that they would make that commitment. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.